Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Maria Popova is the creator and writer behind The Marginalian, which for the past 16 years has been a daily, perhaps even hourly, exploration of wonder in our world, as seen through the lenses of how we as humans express ourselves in our own creativity, intellectual curiosity, in our sadness and grief, and in our greatest loves and joys. Among the many facets of human endeavor Maria has explored these past 16 years, you will also find gardening. A longtime reader of all that you share forward in the world, Maria, I am truly delighted to be in conversation with you today. Welcome to Cultivating Place. It is so wonderful to connect. I'd love to have you introduce yourself to listeners a little more and maybe include in that introduction how you introduce yourself, what your current relationship is to plants, gardens, gardeners in your life right now. Well, you uh, introduced me much more lavishly than I introduced myself. I would simply say that I am a reader and a writer and a lover of the living world and of wonder. Um, my relationship to gardening started in a very, I would say, unusual way, at least to the American uh, person. I was, I had just learned to walk uh, when Chernobyl happened. I was in Bulgaria. And at the time, I was in the care of my maternal grandparents, who were elementary school teachers in rural Bulgaria. Um, this was during communism when elementary school teachers were kind of the lowest rung of, you know, the already pretty flat ladder. Um, so they were quite poor, growing their own food. We had hens and pigs and a vegetable garden that was the primary source of sustenance. And I don't have early childhood memories, but my grandmother tells me that I would watch watch her wrapped uh, washing vegetables because at the time radiation was so poorly understood in addition to there being all kinds of probably government propaganda on top of it to kind of minimize the severity of the situation that the instruction from the government was basically oh just wash your vegetables very well mm -hmm. you know never mind that it's actually in the soil and all of that so my grandmother being a dutiful citizen you know washes all these vegetables, her tomatoes and peppers and, you know, a cornucopia of lettuces and whatnot. And apparently I would watch her do that and then ravenously eat the vegetables every day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's so interesting because this is obviously pre-conscious and yet what an embodied way to understand ecology, this relationship between the environment and the plant and the food. Um, so that was kind of my my formative uh, connection to gardening. Yeah. And my grandmother, who uh, just turned 88 last week, mm -hmm. to this day is uh, unstoppable with her, with her gardening, just uh, harvested her squashes and pumpkins. <laughs> <laughs> and so 
What about right now? Where do gardens or plants figure in your life uh, as a reader, as a writer in Brooklyn? Well, it's interesting because my relationship has changed. Now, I live in Brooklyn about half the time. The other half of the time, I live in a remote old growth forest in the Pacific Northwest. And my relationship to nature is primarily through, I would say, the antithesis of gardening, which is uh, the wilderness, the um, untrammeled landscape and the the orientation not of tending and controlling and stewarding, but of witnessing, perhaps a participatory witnessing, but just being in untainted nature, um, which is in a way, I mean, the forest is the opposite of a garden in some sense. Yeah. Interesting. This is a conversation I have with people a lot, this idea of the antithesis of gardening and what gardening means and what gardening includes or doesn't include. And I I find it fascinating. And the other thing I find fascinating, Maria, is especially in an old growth forest in the Pacific Northwest, of course, these are landscapes which we come to now in our day and age here um, and maybe 50 years ago with this idea that they are untended or untrammeled or doing their own thing. And yet more and more we are learning through first peoples, through research, through uh, archaeological and fossil evidence of carbon layers at the bottom of lakes and the dendrology of trees, that in fact, these were tended, largely tended landscapes for for hundreds, if not thousands of years by peoples in this larger sense. And, and the idea of participatory witnessing is so much, in my mind, a form of gardening, that gardening isn't just the physical activity of taking a shovel and digging a plant or or taking clippers and you know clipping a plant but it's also just that paying attention to what is more and more a gardened world around us that's a beautiful and subtle point and I wonder at the same time, um, how much of it is a kind of semantic acrobatics, right? That I would argue, or I would intuit that I wouldn't call a forest a tended place. I think the relationship ancient cultures have always had with the living world is one of being tended to. Hmm. I, for instance, eat a large portion of my food from the forest when I'm there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I feel cared for as opposed to caring for, which is I have a small garden here in Brooklyn that I tend to, and it feels very much like an inverted relationship. I wonder about that. I wonder about that too, except that I feel that at its very best, the act of, and, and and I don't even have a better word for it, Maria, than gardening, um, but the word garden comes to us with so much European descent, cultural overlay and baggage that it it yes. we, we use it and it and it looks or it connotes certain things. 
when in fact, the more I have done the work that I do, which is a very uh, consciously uh, stated effort to expand and elevate the way we think and talk about gardening in the hopes that it can outgrow that exact connotation and be a, a, the much wider realized relationship with plants that it actually is if you include all different cultural overlays and all the different ways people have not only tended to, but been tended to by plants. That's wonderful. And I mean, I, I love the zooming out. Uh, but of course, if we zoom out all the way and follow this through to the most logical, most kind of furthest conclusion, the world has always been our garden. Yeah. As a species, you know, the world is our garden. And yeah. then how we choose to subdivide that mm. architecturally or culturally, those are almost these kind of artificial overlays, right? That actually when I am walking through the forest and picking nettles and, and mushrooms and the things that I eat naturally, that is my garden. Mm, exactly. Right? And and they are artificial overlays, as is all artifice that we as humans do, but that's exactly how we make meaning out of what mm -hmm. is our time here, right? right? So it's yeah. for me, and, and this is exactly what I um, believed when I started this program, is that this relational life we have with specifically the plant beings, but of course they're connected to everything else. So we then have a relationship to everything else, but they are this beautiful access point to all of that relationality, just like you with those vegetables and your grandmother or, you know, the way flowers or seeds call to us. That artifice is exactly at the level of great literature or verse or or music or cooking. And that it's one of these cultural literacies that if we let it, if we empower it in that way, becomes one of these ways of making meaning that allow us to tend to the world better and allow the world to tend to us better. And also, I think um, it in some way allays the elemental uncertainty of life mm -hmm. okay? in that I think it would be disingenuous to deny that there is an element of control. Um, there's a relationship, an ongoing dialogue between cultivating and controlling, right? The, oh, this yeah. need to, to create this tiny locus of control that in a world that is largely uncontrollable. And I mean, for example, now it's coming to mind, I'd forgotten about this, but uh, when I was around seven or so so this is around the time that communism in bulgaria fell mm -hmm. and things started getting imported from the west and one of the most readily available external things was uh lemons uh, citrus mm -hmm. you know obviously not native to bulgaria so one winter I decided, who knows how, that I was going to grow a lemon tree from a seed from a grocery store lemon right. 
And all the adults were like, yeah, good luck with that, you know, growing a lemon tree in Bulgaria. <laughs> well, now the lemon tree is taller than me. It lives in my parents' apartment mm-hmm. and it gives this one mutant fruit. So it would bloom like a normal lemon tree, you know, a few dozen blossoms of which all but six or seven would fall off. And those remaining ones would give tiny little green baby fruit, Mm -hmm. all but one of which would fall off eventually. And this one survivor every year would produce that would swell to the kind of size and shape of a grapefruit, the color of a lime. But when you slice it, it's just a normal lemon flavor, lemon texture and all of Mm -hmm. that. And I keep thinking about this child, the seven-year-old who somehow decided that this plant was going to be her portal to the West, right? Like this, I was going to kind of control (laughs) geopolitics with my little lemon tree. (laughs) And I will say I have, uh, when I first came to, when I first went to California in my twenties, I was living in the U.S. uh, by that time I came here uh, six days after my 19th birthday on my own and have been living here since, but on the East Coast. I went to California for the first time in my 20s and I saw a Meyer lemon. Yeah. And I thought it was the most marvelous creation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's a human created life form, right? Mm-hmm. But it is so beautiful, so flavorful, so fragrant. So fragrant. It's mm. so fragrant. And in the time since, I have developed a uh, a small career in growing baby Meyer lemon trees for my <laughs> friends for from seeds. Somehow it's endured with me. And it's a kind of, it's a funny story, but it's also, I think there is something deeply uh, just the, part of our animal nature to try to control, even in ways that are beautiful or poetic, but this longing to kind of contain the natural world so it feels more of us even though we are of it. So I want to work with this for just a second, because I think that I agree with everything you say. At the same time, once again, I would also beg to... Differ away. Not (laughs) not differ, but to move above the binary and go back to the the fullness of it because i think one of the great gifts of the garden for me and of these conversations with gardeners like you is that if it's true that we come to it in this impulse to control and i i don't think that's completely true that child who was holding that lemon seed and decided to try to grow it I don't think you were yet at the point where you necessarily were were or overlaying all control as much as you were again participating in in the capacity. So you were actually I think there was some large part of that that might have been control but it was also participation in what is a natural instinct or impulse or or knowledge or yearning in ourselves to be in these relationships with these plants. And while we do try to control, absolutely, like my garden is at one level an exercise in control, but one of the greatest gifts of it uh, is that it teaches me that I can't. It reminds me over and over again, and it kind of practices for me and with me 
this idea of letting go of control. Mm. And I would say that this is also one of the gifts that is so apparent in our gardens right now in the Northern Hemisphere as we're moving into fall, late fall, winter. Like it makes us practice surrender and loss all the time. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Um, I love that. And I also want to make a little bit of a defense of this notion of control because it does have such a negative connotation, but I mean it a little bit differently because as you intimate, there is a very porous boundary between creativity and control. Right. Whether you call it participating, but it's really the kind of creative act, right? Mm. But all creativity is a form of control in a positive generative sense that we are trying to create an experience and in Mm. creating an experience we are controlling an experience right whether it's a work of Mm. art that creates a kind of experience for the reader or the listener that is very much controlled and that's part of the creative vision right that's what it means to be an artist to have a vision that is not uh, you know uncontrolled Uh, but at the same time that is also our portal to freedom. Yeah, yeah. By controlling some variables around that, this tremendous vitality and freedom can can unfold. This is Cultivating Place. This week, we're in conversation with writer, reader, thinker, and creative Maria Popova of the beloved online journal, The Marginalian, a mind-broadening and heart-lifting reflection spanning art, science, poetry, philosophy, and other tendrils of our search for truth, beauty, meaning, and creative vitality. We'll be right back for more with Maria on the many facets of the marginalian in the garden. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the rich intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. This fall, the Conservancy brings us Isabella Tree, the author of The Book of Wilding, to discuss how spectacularly nature can bounce back if we only give her the chance through wilding. And what comes is not just wildlife in super abundance, but also solutions to the other environmental crises we face. The speaking tour takes Isabella Tree to New York City on September 29th for the Garden Futures Summit, and then to Middleburg, Virginia on October 2nd, and St. Louis, Missouri on October 4th. For tickets and more information, go to gardenconservancy.org forward slash education. Hey, it's Jennifer. So in the last 12 months, Cultivating Place has been downloaded more than one million times. 
This surpasses by a lot the number of downloads in any of our previous seasons of tracking such things. And one of the great takeaways in this for me is that the two unifying themes of the most listened to episodes across these past seven years are these gardeners as caring partners in biodiversity reweaving us into a wilder world and gardens as sacred spaces where we engage with the divine universal spirit and make greater meaning in our collective lives. It's an honor. I I have no other way to say that. It is an honor to take part in these weekly conversations that grow us and our places in these exact loving and germinating ways. I am so grateful for your support in this work and grateful to know you're out there listening and growing along, cultivating your places. I send each of you my garden-hearted best for this solstice and holiday season. Happy new circle around the sun. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place, and we're back now to our conversation with writer, reader, cultivator, and curator, appreciator of her places, intellectual and physical, Maria Popova, most widely known for her creation and curation of the online journal The Marginalian, formerly known as Brain Pickings, documenting and reflecting on the culture of our world through the lenses, quite frequently, of its greatest creatives, Maria among them. As we come back, Maria shares the germination story of her online journal, which is read by millions daily and weekly, The Marginalian. It's interesting always to me how, because I write about so many and such disparate things, how people see in it what they are, which is, of course, how we relate to art, uh, all art. Um, We see in it what we are, not what it is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And people who come from the world of science think I write primarily about science, which I write a lot about. People who come from philosophy think I write about philosophy. Poets think I write about poetry. But really, I read and I read to um, understand how to live. And then I write about what I read in discourse with um, the ideas and writings of mostly very bygone people from decades, centuries, sometimes millennia ago. And this kind of public-facing record of it is really my conversations with them in the margins of books. Um, And it's a way of kind of annotating the life of the mind through this one lens that we all have, which is our own mind, right? This one person's mind. So I end up writing about such disparate things because I do think this uh, overarching devotion to wonder is the most cross-disciplinary thing we have, right? I mean, I find it equally breathtaking to regard the physics of a galaxy as I do 
the roots of a plant, you know? And so, yes, I mean, I, it is, it's very hard to kind of summarize what I do. It's, I guess, easier to speak to the spirit in which I do it, which I just kind of done my best to capture. Right. Right. Um, you t- tell people a little bit about when it started and and the forms this now is inclusive of in how your work mm-hmm. comes out to the world, Maria. It started a long time ago. Uh, I think. Well, I know it turned sixteen uh, last month, uh, the day before my grandmother's eighty eighth birthday. <laughs> That's great. And it started. It started. Um, you know, I had come here to the U.S. on my own to go to school, sold on this ideal of liberal arts education, meaning an education that would teach you how to live a, a substantive, meaningful life. Mm. And instead, I found myself kind of unequipped to navigate an enormous school, uh, you know, working four jobs to pay my way through it, and feeling really unmet in this longing for meaning, instead being taught how to memorize and mm-hmm. sort of standardized tested on what I've memorized, and which is partly my own fault, because I just wasn't, uh, I guess, I didn't understand how to find seminars and find kind of more unusual uh, non non-industrial model education pockets within this huge school. But I I just became first of all extremely depressed. I've you know had frequent lifelong visitations of depression, but this was the most extreme um episode. So I really craved something to lift me out by my own bootstraps. And I kept keeping a log of just for my own sanity, wonderful in the literal sense, full of wonder, things that I was encountering on my own outside the classroom, whether at the library or in the city or, or whatever it was. And now at the same time, one of the four jobs that I was working was a little creative agency kind of trying to do good in the world through the communication arts. And it was seven young guys and me, and they were like all young creative people kind of high on inspiration and circulating around the office, these kind of chain emails of look at this cool thing and look at that cool thing. But it it all came from their own field, the other communication arts things like, you know, design and advertising and just kind of very limited. And I had this intuitive sense that if you really wanted to create outside of convention and out of the box of your own category, right? You had to actually look in completely different fields. Mm. So on a complete impulse, one October afternoon in 2006, I said to the one of the guys, Steve, who was the creative director, I said, I, why don't I just start sending out a weekly email to all of us, you know, like an office-wide email that I would include three wonderful things that I've discovered this week on my own, just kind of from this record that I was keeping for myself. And it could be anything from beautiful Japanese woodblocks from the 16th century to a fascinating uh, neuroscience study that just came out to a street art mural that I'd seen in the street in Philadelphia, which is where we were. And it was very brief. It was not literary it was not writing it was just the kind of here's a lovely thing you know 
And that was it. And that's how it started as an email. And then the funny thing that happened was that very soon the guys were like, oh, can you add my girlfriend to the list? Can you add my dad to the list? <laughs> and I was just like, guys, I'm taking a full college course load and have four jobs. I can't administer this stuff. So I thought the easiest way to go about it was to make a website. This was before blogs were what they were and readily available. I don't even know. If, I think WordPress maybe existed, but it was so rudimentary that you kind of had to make your own website. So I took a night class on top of all these other things <laughs> and taught myself code right. and made hideous, I mean, absolutely <laughs> atrocious website. Nonetheless, it was officially up there for anyone to visit without me having to add anyone to anything. It was just kind of every Friday, I would just literally, it was like a bulletin because it was not a blog. You would just remove the former page and put up the new page. So I did that every Friday with whatever I was writing about and highlighting. And then over time, it, it just it just grew somehow and blogging platforms became available. I migrated it to that. And then email newsletters became a thing and I gave it its own little newsletter kind of coming full circle. Uh, but to this day, I write for the same reasons I did back then, which is to, to save myself, you know, mm -hmm. and this outward facing record is just a byproduct of that. It's never, I hate the word content because it has this terrible mm -hmm. connotation of filler material generated for, you know, purveying, you know, stuff. And I like the term cultural matter better because that's what it is. But even that feels so external somehow, it's really kind of a lifeline of sanity. And back then, I really did save myself with wonder, and I still do it daily. Yeah. And it's a kind yeah. of, you know, selfish thing to do. And I do it for me. And I am so grateful that I get to do that. And that somehow, it helps other people. That's so beautiful and so moving. But if the world went away tomorrow, I would still be doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I would wager that anybody in the world who knows they're doing what they're meant to be doing feels the same way about how they spend their time and their attention and their, their energy. The cross line here about what it means to, to live a meaningful life and a successful life. Like in, in doing some of my background reading for this, this, you know, and I, I think so many people listening will have some resonance with this concept of going to school or going to a job, having been sold, literally, this idea that that is what was going to make your life meaningful or, quote, successful, and having this either vague or very, very sharp and clear sensation that this is not what it was meant to be, or you were told it was going to be or feel like. And I think, you know, a lot of people come to their passion um, 
for those same very reasons, Maria, to save themselves, to find something that feels actually meaningful. And, you know, I would say without hesitation, I, I garden to, to save myself. I garden for sanity. And I, and I find that so many other gardeners are out there with that same, <laughs> that same pull. And, um, you know, and it, it is often dismissed in our culture, for sure, as something that's very pretty, but isn't particularly powerful. And um, that is, you know, very pleasant, but not earth changing. Mm. When I feel so completely opposite to that and want gardeners mm. to know that what they're doing is in no uncertain terms, changing the world and engaging with the divine, if they see it that way and choose to, to continue that relationship from that level. Yes, I mean, we can never overestimate the quiet grandeur of these private acts that ripple out. Yeah, yeah. So you begin this, you continue it. It it now has, I don't know, millions of readers every week. You have two different newsletters that come out, one on Sunday uh, that's the the sort of weekly, the marginalian. And you have one that comes out on Wednesdays, the sort of midweek pick-me-up, which is kind of digging into the archives of all that you have uh, written and commented on and compiled and curated these many, many years. Logistically, just to clarify, so I write on the site, the site, marginalian, is the thing. The newsletters are these kind of automated partial summaries. I, I write every single day. I publish at least one essay per day on the site, Monday through Sunday. And what comes out on Sunday is two to four, usually three, select essays from that I've published throughout mm -hmm. that week, or sometimes it runs like a little bit behind because I can't get everything in, obviously, because there I publish more than I put in the newsletter. And then the midweek, as you say, is just something chosen from the archive that I've personally revisited that mm -hmm. week because the things are so evergreen. I mean, you know, reading Iris Murdoch 50 years later or 55 years later makes right. no difference. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sometimes I would literally dive back into my own archive because I need this perspective again, or, you know, we bring ourselves to everything every time we encounter it and we encounter it differently because we are different people throughout time so anyway the midweek is just this kind of resurfacing of one little evergreen thing yeah and so you publish something every single day I do and you know I went through a period I've now no idea how I was doing it <laughs> in 20. I would say from 2012 to 2014 or 15, I was doing three pieces a day, every day, Monday through Friday. Wow. But I will say they were shorter form. As I've grown older, 
the rabbit holes I go in are much deeper. So the <laughs> essays are much more time consuming. They're right. longer. I've done all the, I've made all the unpopular choices uh, on the web as, you know, the internet has gotten more and more short form and soundbitey and clickbaity and all of that. I've done longer, longer and longer. Things. Yeah very elaborate kind of unappealing titles <laughs> very abstract <laughs> it gives me a lot of joy and, and solace this is cultivating place this week we're in conversation with writer and reader maria popova of the beloved online journal the marginalian which is mind-broadening and heart-lifting written reflections spanning meaning and creative vitality in us as humans. We'll be right back for more with Maria. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer, thinking out loud this week. You know, there is an embodied lesson from the garden in Maria Popova being in conversation with me today. As a handful of you dedicated Cultivating Place listeners have reached out to me over the past few years, wondering if I might invite Maria to the program. I finally did just this, this past summer, and as you may have heard a couple of episodes back, Maria very kindly got back to me and politely declined the invitation. I was of course disappointed, but I also understood, and in my reply to her explanation around this, I offered that if she ever thought she might want to be in conversation about this shared garden love, I would be happy to leave the invitation open to her. Several months later, Maria reached back out to me to say that after listening to the program, she would like to be in conversation with me about the prismatic ways and means of cultivating our own places and those places cultivating us. And I was delighted. The lesson here is a lesson I get from the garden over and over again these past 50 or so years. Keep planting seeds of those lives in whose presence you would like to grow yourself. And eventually, these seeds will germinate. Keep planting. Keep growing. And happy winter dormancy, winter solstice, and slow tending back toward the light. But not right now. For right now, dormancy, and we rest. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place, and we're back now to our conversation with Maria Popova, writer, reader, appreciator, and cultivator of her places, intellectual and physical. Maria is most widely known, perhaps, for her creation and curation of the online journal The Marginalian. As we come back, Maria is sharing more about the winding trails of her work and all of our associative minds. Well, that's how our minds work, though, don't you think? I mean, we're these association machines, and or at least how my mind works. And every one thing we encounter, if we are 
attentive enough reminds us of something else or has a compliment in some other thing that maybe is not the most obvious association, but some resonance brings it to mind. And then they end up enriching each other when considered in parallel. Absolutely. And I think our minds do work this way always, but I think we don't always recognize and kind of revel in the way they work. That's right. That's right. We, we are so busy and distracted with all of the things you just talked about before, the, you know, clickbaity world we live in, that we don't actually remember to enjoy this incredible richness of constant association. And it's, again, because everything for me comes back to the garden, Maria. <laughs> it's what it's like my great love of being in my garden or being on a trail or in the wilderness is this ability to see my mind at work and in, and get to enjoy it. Yes, this conversation with our own minds uh that's where so much of the wonder happens. I mean, of course there is no wonder yeah. outside of consciousness. Consciousness is the only thing that exists for us how we yeah. tend to our own consciousness, how we cultivate mm. the garden of the mind actually is the only way that 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 we get to shape life, that the way we experience yeah. it. Right. And and I think again, one of the things that people I'm I'm projecting there, one of the things that I find so joyful about um these connections you you make is that reforming, reviewing, re um considering what we see as valuable. And not only what we see or say is valuable, but what we prove is valuable to us by where we spend our time, our attention, our energy, and our resources, whether those are time and energy and attention, money, um, whatever it might be. That, I think, it is something our world is also hungry for, is redefining what a meaningful life and success and, and value, um, what those mean to us. I also, I mean, part of me just wants to say it's there is no redefining because since the dawn of our species, we just struggle with the same problems and have the same longings and peel back <laughs> everything far enough. It comes down to the fundamentals, how we live, how we love, how we die and what to make of it all. And all the other things, the redefinitions or repackaging, it's just repackaging of the same material that we live with. And I think the people who self-select to listen to your show or read my site or I mean they, they are always impelled by the same impulses that are actually not at all so different among us and between us and it just takes a way of peeling back to see that and to step into it and all the kind of surface level packaging and repackaging and definitional things and semantics it's just distraction from that yeah 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 and i yeah <laughs> i'm just thinking about my my own garden and and um 
and imagining, you know, you in the old growth forest in the Pacific Northwest or in your garden in Brooklyn or in your grandmother's vegetable garden in Bulgaria. And that is, um, you know, and you said it right in the beginning, like we, we see in what's in front of us, what we are ourselves. And, um, and there is, there is always wonder to be found there if we, if we are open to it. And, and that energetic exchange of paying attention to the wonder is for me a form of gardening. You're walking through the old growth forest and gathering mushrooms or picking nettles or just, you know, forest bathing as the Japanese <laughs> call it, that, that influx of pheromones and, um, sensory input that is a form of gardening because of your energy paying attention to it to me like that that flow means something even if we can't see what its impact is that appreciation and presence does something there absolutely i mean i would say the vast majority of the things that do something that work us over in some way or fine-tune our souls the vast majority we can't see and we can't name but there they are yeah so earlier this year in i think may may of of 2022 you you curated uh, 200 years of great writers and artists on the creative and spiritual rewards of gardening. And you included, you know, kind of links to and, and discussions of some of these great uh, artists and writers um, in their gardens. Do you want to talk a little bit of, or share anything about what pulled you to put that together and anything you particularly hold on to or take from it? Um, well, one consequence of reading so widely and so voraciously and having an association machine in my mind <laughs> is that <laughs> these patterns would emerge across very different things that I've read over time. And my brain would just literally compose this omnibus of multiple perspectives on the same subject from, you know, all the different mm -hmm. readings. So every once in a while, I don't do it often, but every once in a while, I'll, I would do something like this where I um, composite this kind of florilegium of uh, different vantage points on a subject. On this one, I mean, I don't remember exactly. I mean, obviously, I write a thing a day every day. And since May, this has been you know, several right. hundred pieces. But, you know, I remember I had... Um, Emily Dickinson there, who was, as most people probably know, a just passionate gardener, and a lot of her poetry was drawn from the garden, uh, and also contemporary writers like Olivia Lang, who is, I, I often joke, it's not really a joke, that the living are not my forte, but uh, of the few living that I enjoy and read, including Rebecca Solnit, is also Olivia Lang, who's a wonderful English writer. Uh, who wrote a piece um, about gardening as a form of resistance, drawing on 
artist mm -hmm. and filmmaker and um, gay rights activist Derek Jarman's uh, right. um, diaries of his garden when um, his all of his friends were dying of AIDS. And I mean, talk about saving yourself, right? He took mm -hmm. up this cottage on this windy coast and made this incredible garden and wrote kind of about the garden, but of course you can't help it ever be about life and the meaning of life when you are tending to life form. Right, right. Is there anything you would like to add about the importance of, of plants or, or gardens in in your ongoing life um, and thinking and um, analyzing and associating? Well, I would say mostly that um, I am much more moved by the non-human world than the human world, which is not hard these days as the human world uh, is what it is. <laughs> and I do find in it this lovely reminder that, I mean, it's so interesting. I know you think about this a lot, this notion of calling nature our environment is so horrifyingly anthropocentric, like this stuff that surrounds us, us in the center. And mm. paying attention to the life of the world, the life of plants, shows us this delicate indivisibility of life and reminds us that, no, actually, we are fractals of nature, human nature, even at its most beautiful is just a fractal of nature. Yeah. And again, I think that's one of the many gifts of the garden. We go out thinking we're in control and we come away remembering that we are a tiny part of a much bigger and wondrous whole. Maybe we could end with you reading um, an excerpt from the opening to that May of 2022 compilation. Okay, so this is just the introductory uh, paragraph before I have the different, uh, oh, I see now who the people were. Oh, yes, of course, Virginia Woolf. In fact, her right now underneath my computer as we speak, propping my, I work on a standing desk, is uh, a wonderful book by Caroline Zub called Virginia Woolf's Garden. And there are excerpts from it in this piece. And I, I love the quote um, that you included in that piece from Virginia Woolf. Um, the wordless are the happy women in cottage gardens. It's so funny, too. And it, it's also so dark. I mean, her humor was so dark. And she was going through one of her frequent spells of mm. very debilitating depression and struggling yeah. with creative block and saving herself yeah. in her garden wordlessly. Literally, the words were not coming. Yeah. Yeah. There's always that tension. And the balancing or the dynamic pull of those, those tensions. So here it goes. Something happens when you're in a garden, when you garden. Something beyond the tactile reminder that in the history of life on earth, without flowers, there would be no us. Kneeling between the scale of seeds and the scale of stars, Touching evolutionary time and the cycle of the seasons at once, you find yourself rooted more deeply into your own existence, transient and transcendent, fragile and ferociously resilient, and are suddenly humbled into your humanity. 
lest we forget humility comes from humulus, Latin for low of the earth. You look at a flower and cannot help but glimpse the meaning of life. And here I have a, this, it's so interesting to read hypertext because obviously there are connections and uh, references, allusions, um, embodied footnotes in this text. So this glimpse the meaning of life links to an older essay um, about bridging Emily Dickinson and Michael Pollan and the little prince uh, about using the flower as a lens on the meaning of life. Anyway, perhaps because the life of the garden is also a vivid reminder that anything of beauty and radiance takes time, takes care, takes devotion to seed and sprout and bloom. Gardens have long been living cathedrals for the creative spirit. And with that, we lead into some creative spirits who have gardened. Yeah. including at least one guest, well, one, because that's the only living one, who has been on your show, uh, Jamaica Kinsade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I don't remember if Ross Gay was in there, but you have spoken of Ross Gay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and Ross is in there. That's right. Yes. Um, yeah, there's a there's several guests. So I always appreciate your your insights and your connective and emotional thinking and expressing and I am very grateful for your time here with us today thank you for being in conversation with me thank you Jennifer and thank you for what you make and for the spirit in which you make it it's been a wonderful companion on my walks in the woods oh nice nice Maria Popova is the creator and writer behind The Marginalian, which for the past 16 years has been a daily, perhaps even hourly, exploration of wonder in our world, as seen through the lenses of how we as humans express ourselves in our own creativity, intellectual curiosity, in our sadness and grief, and in our greatest loves and joys. Gardening is among the many facets of human endeavor Maria has explored these past years in The Marginalian. Maria is also the founder and producer since 2017 of the annual charitable celebration and gathering of voices known as the Universe Inverse. She is the author of several solo and collaborative titles, including Figuring, The Snail with the Right Heart, a true story illustrated by Ping Zhu, and finally, The Velocity of Being, Letters to a Young Reader, edited by Maria and Claudia Bedrick, a series of letters from beloved, well-known, and little-known writers to young readers about the power of reading in one's life. You can find out more about all that Maria cultivates in this world at themarginalian.com or in this week's show notes under the podcast tab, where you'll also find many images at cultivatingplace.com. Speaking of plants and place, it's fully winter in the Northern Hemisphere, and for many of us, that comes with the seasonal return of citrus, ripening here and now and wherever citrus grows, but being shipped around the globe as winter gifts of great goodness. 
Based on the story Maria Popova shared in our Cultivating Place conversation about growing a Meyer lemon from seed, this week we dig into the beloved so-called Meyer lemon, which for most growers or eaters since 1975 is actually the so-called improved Meyer lemon, Citrus Meyeri. First grown in China as a cross between a regular lemon and a mandarin, the Meyer lemon was introduced to the U.S. early in the 20th century by American agricultural explorer Frank Meyer. The Meyer lemon was soon grown across the U.S., especially in the citrus-growing regions of Florida, Texas, and California. The original Meyer lemon was, however, prone to pests and disease, and according to a 2009 NPR report from Julie O'Hara, in the 1960s nearly the entire population of Meyer lemons in California was killed by a viral disease, endangering all of the state's citrus crops. But from survivors of this fungal disease, the dwarf improved Meyer lemon was introduced to the trade by the University of California in 1975, and it has flourished since with all the joys of the Meyer lemon and far less of its susceptibilities. Although Florida is struggling with a citrus blight right now that has eliminated a good percentage of the homegrown Meyer lemons there. The joys of the tender and sweet Meyer lemon include its smooth, thin, edible rind and its quantity of juice, juice characterized by the other joys of the fruit. Sweeter, less acidic, and far more aromatic than other lemons. These strengths of the Meyer lemon are, of course, correlated with the improved Meyer lemon's challenges as well. The thin skin means it doesn't store well, nor does it ship well, making it a treasured seasonal gift and protecting it from easily becoming only a commodity. The improved Meyer lemon is hardy, planted outside from zones 8 to 11. It's also easily grown in a pot and brought inside in the coldest months in colder climates, as Maria Popova shared, having grown her first Meyer lemon from seed indoors in Bulgaria in the 1980s. Meyer lemon plants are self-fertile, meaning you only have to have one in order to get fruit, and they'll produce fruit in as few as two years. They grow to seven or so feet, but they don't mind being kept pruned to a more manageable size for their space, both their space above ground and their soil and root space below ground. Even after they get going, the plants like regular water, but allow the soil to dry out between waterings to at least two or three inches. They also benefit from regular organic citrus food. Every six to eight weeks or so, from the time they stop producing fruit and begin to set bloom buds in midwinter until they set fruit in the next season in early summer. Meyer lemon's fruiting season begins in November and can extend into March or even April. Like most citrus, Meyer lemons like full sun, meaning 8 to 12 hours every day of direct sunlight, 
even here in Northern California. To avoid pests, diseases, and things like scale, cut back the dense interior growth of the plant to allow for better sunlight in the interior and better air circulation. Also, water at the soil and base of your tree in the ground or in the pot rather than watering overhead to keep the structure of the plant dry and disease-free. Here in our gardens, Meyer lemons are fragrant gifts of the season for others, and their juice and zest will brighten baking and table decorations for months to come, reminding us that beauty, health, and treasure are often grown and come in small, colorful plant packages. Once you meet the bright, sweet scent and tang of a Meyer lemon yourself, you will not forget it. Join us again next week when we explore the importance and heart behind community-based and community-led ecology in conversation with naturalist and activist Chris Sarabia of the Palos Verdes Peninsula Land Conservancy and more. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you through the support button at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you in advance for supporting this growing work. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.